Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. As many of you are aware, there are multiple technical issues with the administration of the General Surgery Qualifying Exam this year, frequently called the QE, which is a written multiple choice exam taken at the conclusion of general surgery training. Once this is passed, you then take your certifying exam, also known as the CE, which is an oral board examination. Once you pass both of these, then you are considered board certified by the American Board of Surgery. Many trainees spend months studying for the qualifying exam and plan their summers before starting their fellowship or first jobs around this exam. So the disruption and eventual cancellation of this exam is quite problematic, as we will discuss in the podcast. Our goal at Behind the Knife is to facilitate a productive discussion to help trainees nationwide understand the rationale for decisions that are being made at the American Board of Surgery, and to make the voices and concerns of trainees heard at the highest levels of the American Board of Surgery. Many of the specifics as to how and when board exams will be restarted is still not known, and that is why we do not ask these questions in the podcast. We will link to the frequently asked questions guidelines that the American Board of Surgery has released in our show notes. Okay, let's dive into this episode. So today we are lucky enough to have Dr. Joe Beiske. She's the president and the CEO of the American Board of Surgery. We also have Dr. Benjamin Jarman. He's the Gunderson Medical Foundation General Surgery Residency Program Director, and he's the president of the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. We have Dr. Brittany Bankhead-Kindle. She's a trauma and acute care surgeon at Texas Tech University of Health Sciences. We have Dr. Allison Martin, who's an incoming surgical oncology fellow at MD Anderson. And for Behind the Knife host today, we have myself, Kevin Canary, and we have Dr. Michael Vu. So, so Dr. Beiske, I just want to uh, jump right in. Can you just explain to us uh, back when you guys made the decision um, to switch to an online-based exam this year, how this decision was come to and uh, how you chose a company to do this? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm not sure what point in time to start, but I guess I'll start at the beginning and then you can decide what uh, what pertains. So we, uh, we became aware in April that Pearson Centers were... Uh, intermittently closing and reopening and sort of waves across the country as the virus spread around the country and different states had different requirements for social distancing or for gathering. Uh, And so we actually had a small exam going at that time. And some of our candidates were calling saying I was scheduled, but then I was canceled. Uh, So that was our first sort of inkling of disruption or first thought of disruption at the high stakes exam centers. We've used Pearson view for as long as I've been at the board, which is 12 or 14 years now. Uh, and so we contacted Pearson View, and they promptly closed uh, across the country for a couple of weeks while they were figuring out what they needed to do in terms of social distancing and local requirements. They had 50 different states, 50 different requirements. In Pennsylvania and Alaska, for example, we had to call the governor uh, to get permission to deliver the exam as a high stakes exam. And that's only an example of just how variable the rules were. Uh, and they they were not able to say that they would be able to give an exam in July uh, for all 1,400 candidates on one day, as we've done always in the past. And you know, totally reasonably, they had no idea what was going to happen. They knew they were going to be at half capacity. They didn't know it was going to be open. And, and they've been great partners in working as we have to say that. So that was the moment when we realized that we really had to figure out what we were going to do with this exam. 
So we developed some principles, which uh, is one of the ways we like to make decisions at the board. And principle number one was that we were a healthcare organization. We were not going to be responsible for spreading this virus. So we were going to do our part to fight the pandemic. And to do that, we wanted to avoid requiring anyone in our purview to be in public spaces. So we closed the office completely within days. We canceled all of our in-person meetings, converted them to virtual. Our board meetings, we canceled two sets of oral exams for general surgery, so about 650 people, uh, and another vascular surgery oral exam. Uh, And then we turned our thoughts to the qualifying exam. So we can't give it at a Pearson Center um, because we don't want people, even if they're open, first of all, it'd be incredibly unreliable. Some people might be able to take it and some wouldn't. They might be canceled at the last minute. We didn't want to expose people to chaos. That part, as it turns out, we ended up exposing people to even more chaos than we ever imagined. But that was one of the, uh, the thoughts and, uh, and we didn't want people in elevators, on subways, getting to the exam uh, or being in exam centers, not knowing how compliant they were going to be. And the second principle is we wanted to keep people's certification timelines on track. We know that July is valuable and that people you know, have time and space, ideally, to study, um, that they want to f- take their, oral, their written exam and then move on to their oral exam, um, uh, that some jobs depend on it. So we wanted to keep that timeline intact, if possible, all of which led us to, to the decision to do a web-based at-home. Uh, exam. Yeah, I can speak a little bit to the um, testing at a Pearson Center during COVID. I was taking my RPVI, Registered Physician in Vascular Interpretation, and I actually got canceled multiple times the night before at 9 p.m. Uh, I got an email after kind of studying. So I think seeing the context of all this uh, really helps, uh, you know, put your guys' decision um, into perspective. Um, so can you tell me how we, uh, this proctoring company that, uh, that gave the exam how that was established? So um, we've worked for years with uh, internet testing service. They're the ones that do the in-training exam and also our continuous certification exam. And they have a capacity to take computers and lock down all the browsers and other um, access so that your computer itself is a secure device. Uh, And given that this is a high stakes exam, we needed it to be as reliable and and valid as possible. So just locking down the computers for people around the country wasn't going to be enough. And, you know, all the universities were using, um, you know, remote proctoring. So uh, in order to meet the standards we need for security, we decided to go with remote proctoring. And, and I would roll back a little bit and say, anytime you start an exam process and work with a vendor, you have to give them the questions, the final exam, about 10 weeks ahead of time um, for them to go through their translations and uploading and all the other work that they do to turn it into something that can be delivered, uh, a minimum of eight weeks and often as much as 12. So there was a point where we had to pull the trigger and there was no going back uh, other than to cancel the exam. Uh, so, peer, so internet testing services didn't have remote proctoring, but they knew that this was coming down the pike because everybody had already camped, uh, contacted them from other boards and other groups. And they've done some market research. Um, they were still um, vetting people. We did our own research. And both of us came up with Very Efficient, actually, as the lead, the lead candidate. From their point of view, they'd been in the market for about seven years um, uh, from our point of view, they offered everything that we wanted. They had live remote proctoring. They had a really good uh, ratio of proctors to candidates. Some companies had, you know, 20 candidates to one proctor. Um, uh, Verificient had uh, uh, four candidates to one proctor. Uh, and so ITS investigated them from a capacity, you know, from a technology point of view, and we investigated them from can they, can they deliver the services. And we also did look into them um, in terms of their past records. And we did not see anything about security breaches. We didn't see anything about failed uh, exams. And I would say we still don't know that there was a security breach. We are actively investigating that. And there may be, given all the coincidence of, or coincidence, all the, um, you know, the timing of the complaints. Uh, but they didn't have a history of one before. And I don't want to 
uh, paint them right now with a blush that there's definitely been one now. Definitely. Uh, one question before we dive into our examinees. Uh, what, what is remote proctoring? I, I'd never heard of this until this came about. Can you just tell us kind of what the setup is and, and what's expected of candidates? It, uh, it can be anything from um, AI, which is actually with very efficient strength, or that's why they're sort of lead in the field uh, where um, uh, they have systems that track things like eye movement you know, and the, the AI is watching you through your video, like we're watching each other right now, you have to have a video enabled computer in order to be able to do it. Uh, and if you look away for a certain amount of time, um, if you stand up and leave the screen, if they hear sounds in the background, if they see someone moving in the background, AI will shut down the exam, for example, that would be one way of doing it. Um, AI is often backed up by live proctors, so that AI will pause the exam and then there's a quick video review of what just happened and a live proctor will make a decision. That's another level. Uh, we went for the highest level, which is that there's simultaneous AI and a live proctor. And in this case, um, candidates had to have a second camera in the room. We use smartphones uh, and Verificient had an app that had to be downloaded onto your smartphone as well as software that had to be downloaded on your computer to permit all this. So the smartphone is set up in such a way that it sees the side of your face and your computer monitor Proctor can see that. Proctor can see you from your screen. They have a sort of full view. And they can also see your, your screen itself. Um, so there's a person watching and, uh, and AI backing up that person in case they miss anything. Great. Okay, so we sort of get the setup here. Um, so let's hear from some of the examinees on sort of what the test day situation was like and, and how this impacted them. So uh, Dr. Bankhead Kendall, can you just kind of take us through uh, what your experience was? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, leading up to the day of the exam, we were sent very specific instructions on how to set up our computers, what software we needed to download, um, what the requirements of the system were going to be. And I think both myself and many other candidates didn't have laptops or smartphones that were capable of handling some of those. Um, so I know I went out and bought a new laptop and bought a new smartphone, and we these were things we had to do in order to comply with um, how the test was going to be administered, and and we did it. Um, everything uh, was set up and downloaded the night before, um, and the days leading up to it. Um, there were, I think, a few red flags for some of us in terms of trying to set up the system and having some problems and not getting really good uh, answers to the questions that we had from the company. Um, so that was kind of our first red flag, but we assumed everyone was working through it and figuring it out and it would be okay the day of. Um, I was on the East Coast, the first kind of 7 a.m. start time. So the day of, um, I redid all of the proctoring things that they asked of us. So turning on the computer, making sure that our computers had um, microphone, the company had access to our microphones, our cameras in our computer, everything throughout our laptops. Um, and then they also had access to our smartphones and we would move it around and show them up, down, all around in the room. And they would have kind of full access to everything going on at that time. Um, so I logged in that day and um, I got a, a message from the proctor who identified himself as the proctor and kind of did a one more check over. And then I was left <laughs> and I sat in my chair for about 50 minutes, five zero, um, and just waited. <laughs> and I, 
I finally, I thought maybe I was doing something wrong, but everything had looked like it was okay. And so I, I sat in my chair because I didn't want to be flagged for getting up at that point because my phone was on and I kept texting the proctor and saying, please help me, please help me. That's all I know really to say. I can't get in touch with you any other way. Um, I finally, after 30 minutes, pulled up the website and used the um, company live chat and tried doing things there. Um, and they didn't respond to me either. Um, and then finally, after that length of time, the proctor said, oh, why haven't you gotten started? And I said, I've been waiting. Nothing's popping up for me. We finally figured out uh, that my browser wasn't coming up correctly. So then uh, he was able to walk me through that. I started the exam and uh, got through it okay. Um, there was some discrepancies in terms of you're not allowed to leave the room. But then I said, what if I have to use the restroom? Am I allowed? And he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And I said, okay, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure which one uh, I can or can't do, and I don't want to be flagged. Um, so I started section three, actually, and had maximized the screen. Obviously, I didn't want to see anything else on my screen at the time, all the other little icons and things. So I maximized it so I would only be seeing the exam. And uh, as soon as I was finished with that section, I minimized it again so I could take my break, drink some water. And I had a slew of messages from the proctor saying, I can't see you. Your phone is off. Um, what are you doing? Are you there? And I said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I didn't get any of these messages. Um, I, I apologize. I'm here. And he said, you need to quit everything and shut it all down now. And you need to re-download everything. And we only had five-minute breaks to do this in. And so at this point, I have 30 seconds left until the next part of the test started. The proctor, I, I actually tried to shut down my smartphone. It wouldn't let me. It said, your test is still in process. You're not allowed to shut down your smartphone. And so I told the proctor, I, I, I literally cannot. I'm trying to do what you're asking me, but it won't happen. And now I have 15 seconds left. So either you tell me exactly what to do or I'm starting this next section of the exam and you can watch me through my computer and my smartphone is still here and saying it's recording. And all he said was, okay. So I continued on with the exam. I left it minimized this time. And then five minutes later or so, I'm in the middle of my timed section and he starts popping up, which the little message bar comes up every time uh, and says, wait, why didn't you finish everything? And I said, you told me it was okay to proceed and I'm still telling you, but I cannot um, download what you're asking me to download and it won't let me end anything. And um, he kept popping up with these messages and I reminded him this is a timed exam. I really need to proceed. Um, and after I finished everything, I, I asked him again, do I need to do anything else to assure you that I've been doing everything correctly? And he said, no, it's fine. You can shut it down. And, and so I did. And I assumed I was a one-off. And then I went to Twitter and saw that it wasn't just me. Um, yeah, that was okay. my experience the day of. <laughs> that sounds incredibly harrowing. I mean, did it seem like the proctor knew what was going on? Or was it an issue from the proctor's perspective? Or what, what exactly do you think was going on? It seems like to me that the proctors were following a, 
like almost a script of what they should be doing and that that wasn't happening from a technology standpoint. And there was no, um, this is all speculation, of course. I don't know. It just seemed like he was kind of told what he was supposed to do. That wasn't happening from a technology standpoint. And he didn't know how to troubleshoot what was happening or how to help me um, figure mm -hmm. it out. What about you, Dr. Martin? Um, what was your experience like during the test? You know, so I think for so many of us, you know, exam day was a frustrating um, and distressing um, experience as uh, Dr. Bankhead Kendall has um, described in uh, gross detail. Um, a lot of it had to do with um, not having enough information in real time about what was okay and what was not okay. So, you know, although I later found out that, you know, I was not alone in being, you know, fairly overtly harassed by my proctor, um, being accused of taking, you know, unscheduled breaks despite being on a scheduled break, um, and having to even call the support hotline during um, my exam, uh, which I had to do. Um, it was not until after I actually completed my examination um, that I found out um, that my experience was shared by so many of my fellow candidates, but that many of them actually experienced um, much worse um, than what I um, had experienced. So I was ultimately able to complete day one of the exam. Um, I had no idea if calling tech support during my exam would be viewed as a violation of exam rules. Um, you know, immediately following the exam, there was very little information available um, on social media um, or on the ABS website to help calm these fears. Did you feel harassed too, um, uh, like by the, the people that you spoke to on tech support or what, what do you mean exactly by felt, felt harassed? Did, did they not treat you well? Yeah, so um, my um, my first um, actual technical fail was that um, although I used a recommended browser for my onboarding, it worked perfectly prior to the day of the exam. Um, on the day of exam, I used the same web browser and there was a plugin that was required to download and it would not download. So I went through a lot of means trying to get someone um, from tech support through chat um, and through a phone call um, to help me figure out how to make that plugin work. Ultimately, they um, had asked me to download um, software that would allow them to take over my computer so that they could see my screen and troubleshoot. Um, but um, actual, um, actually Firefox wouldn't allow for that plugin to be downloaded um, and they could offer no additional solution. So finally, I just said, you know, forget this option. Let me try another browser, which I did, ultimately could download the plugin and log in. Um, then my next hurdle came when it was time for the room scan, which took um, about an hour to complete. Um, but when it finally did pop up, the proctor had apparently sent me a lot of messages through chat where they thought I could see the messages, but I actually could not see those messages. And they were very much blaming me for the fact that they did not approve my room scan. And I, I didn't, I wanted to take pictures of the screen so that I would have that information for later. But once again, not wanting to violate any exam rules, I refused to use my cell phone or any kind of screen capture technology um, out of fear for violating exam rules, which I was strongly against doing. Um, but they basically said, you know, you didn't respond to our chat. And as I entered the exam, they continued to send me multiple messages through the chat, which made it really fairly impossible for me to focus on reading the question stem and move forward. So I would say I was probably about 10 minutes into section one when I finally said, please, please, please stop talking to me about the fact that I didn't respond to questions about the room scan and just, you know, let me take my exam. Um, and it happened multiple times again. Um, I asked if I could go to the bathroom during my first scheduled break. And the proctor um, responded with what looked like a pre 
um, preconceived, pre-generated message that I was not required to tell them when I was going on an, on a scheduled break. And so then for my second um, scheduled break, I just automatically got up uh, and went to the bathroom. And when I got back, like uh, Dr. Bankhead Kendall described, I had multiple messages saying, you have violated the exam rules. You should not have gotten up. You've, you're not visible on the screen. Um, and so that went on and on and on um, throughout the entire exam. Wow, <clears throat> that, that is a lot. Dr. Bankhead Kendall, did you end up finishing your exam for day one? I did. I was able to get through the first day um, through all what I think were four sections. Everyone was a little confused too because the sections were titled wrong. It would say you're on section three of five, but really I was on my fourth section. And so everyone was a little confused as to whether we had actually completed day one. Um, I know some people got kicked out in the middle of sections, so then they weren't sure. And then they would get a new round of questions. And um, luckily I, I did complete what I think was day one. Gotcha. And then Dr. Dr. Martin, for you? Yes, I fully completed day one. Um, like Dr. Bankhead Kendall just said, my exam um, from section two onward said section two of four. Um, and so that's why that was part of um, my little personal internal panic during section three when it still said section two. I had no idea if my responses for section two it had recorded. So I ended up calling customer support to verify that because I wanted to make sure that my responses had been counted. Um, and just briefly before we go back to Dr. Baisky to hear on her end um, how this day, what the actual technical failures were, um, Dr. Martin and, and Dr. Bankhead Kendall, can you guys each just tell us a little bit about how, you know, how you scheduled your summer around this exam and how this might impact you, whether financially um, or with your career in the coming in the coming year. Um, this sort of situation? I can go first. I don't mind. <laughs> um, so I, I began to formally prepare for the qualifying exam after finishing up uh, my general surgery residency at the University of Virginia um, in mid-June. Um, so my exam materials included um, a couple of uh, popular question banks, um, in addition to reviewing um, personal notes that I had created um, through preparation for and training examinations over the last seven years. Um, I typically start around 7.30 a.m., um, complete between 150 and 200 questions, um, and then finish my prep around 4 or 5 p.m. Um, I was actually um, uh, lucky enough to take the exam um, on campus at UVA Health, um, and I know that's uh, uh, probably an atypical experience. I know of multiple candidates that had to rent hotel rooms or prematurely relocate to their fellowship location in order to secure private and functional um, Wi-Fi. Um, to sit for the exam. So I was pretty lucky to not have to purchase a new laptop as Dr. Bankhead Kendall had to and as one of my uh, colleagues had to purchase a new laptop. Um, I didn't have to make any additional purchases, but you know, I, I do think that the um, you know, extenuating um, circumstances and sacrifices that were made by so many candidates should be taken into account. I mean, between travel and housing, um, hardware, software issues, um, the, the childcare costs, I, that is not my personal experience, but I, I've talked to so many people where the childcare cost and the, the, the fear of having exposed their children to higher risk COVID settings through the use of daycare so that they could prepare for the examination, um, those, those sacrifices cannot be um, uh, overstated. So, yeah, I um, I do have children and I was in fellowship this year. So my experience is a little bit different and, and we all have our stories. They are 
a vast range, but um, personally for me, I, so I was in fellowship this year in a critical care fellowship in Boston. So um, I had wanted to take kind of a longer amount of time to study. I had started a little bit in February, wanting to do a little bit each day and uh, knowing full well, I wouldn't have all of July off um, and then COVID hit. So had to put that on the back burner for a while. We um, worked all through that, obviously, when our city was surging. Um, as we came down from that, then I picked back up on studying again, realized that I needed to use my two weeks of vacation to study and not to spend time with my kids, who I had sent down to Texas um, to be with their grandparents so that I could be working full force here. So instead of going down to spend time with them, I stayed here and I studied and um, also bought question banks, like Dr. Martin said, um, and bought several materials like CSAP and TrueLearn and, and all of these things. Um, and I spent two solid weeks uh, of what I really honestly could have used as recuperation and downtime with my family after what was a really difficult um, and emotional spring, uh, I used it to study. Um, and uh, while I am a firm believer in that everything that we do should ultimately benefit our patients and come back to patient care, and I know that that studying wasn't in vain, I know that it will be used uh, for good because now it's all up there and I'll use it eventually and my patients will benefit from it. I'm still a little sad uh, that I missed out on that time yeah. with them. Um, yeah. Definitely as trainees and as surgeons, our free time is our one of our most valuable resources. Um, so Dr. Baisky, I can't even imagine from your end uh, the hectics of that day and that night um, and how stressful that must have been on your end. Um, can you give us a little perspective on, on what you know and, and what the, the company told you was the ultimate failure? Yeah, so, so I will, but, uh, but I can't just jump right into that because I just have to acknowledge that those stories are, they're, they're hideous. They're incredibly sad. They're incredibly awful. Um, I could feel my blood pressure start to go up, starting with the first story about sitting there and trying to deal with proctors. And so, um, uh, I, I, I don't even know what to say about the, the impact on everybody's lives uh, of all of this, the, the kids, the expenses, the stress. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the saddest themes for me is that surgeons are so willing to shoulder what they have to shoulder. And everybody was sort of uh, shouldering through both COVID and this. And even the morning of the exam, when it was all going crazy, when you would sort of rightfully accept to be in a quiet environment, you know, away from everything. And it's just, it's just, it is, it is awful. And we feel that it's awful. Uh, and I, you know, I, I was on a town hall the other night and someone said, well, the board doesn't have any empathy. And it's just, I was horrified to think that anybody felt that way. Cause we, uh, we are, <laughs> it's not about us. <laughs> so uh, I don't think we have made a big deal about uh, how distressed we are, but uh, those stories are, are powerful. Um, and, uh, and I'm very sorry about all of that. Uh, so without, um, taking up the whole time talking about that, um, from our end and listening to this, it, 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 uh, reemphasizes me that we gruesomely underestimated how much hassle was going to go into even just preparation. Um, you know, the laptops that don't, you know, weren't compliant or the phones that weren't compliant, finding an empty space. I don't think we 
you know, uh, AI and remote proctoring is relatively new. You know, the, 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 you know, the most common thing is to see a picture on social media of a kid with their, you know, book under their desk and the AI proctor not seeing them from the direct candidate. So I, 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 we completely underestimated how difficult it was going to be for people to find space and equipment and comply and be somewhere quiet. So that was, um, I think, sin number one. And the day of the exam, we were, we were in the dark as much as the candidates. Uh, so we had, you know, all hands on deck, both for us and for ITS. ITS, we worked really closely with over the years. You know, we, we um, were not friends, but we know we worked together a lot. So they had their full staff on. We had our full staff on to monitor the exam because we never done anything like this before. And so for the first hour, um, uh, we didn't hear much. Uh, and so we got hourly updates about how many people had actually started the exam. And so it was supposed to happen in 130 person waves. Um, and at eight o'clock the of the 130 people who should have started the exam, 127 had, or at least that's the message that we got. So we were like, okay, good. You know, and the other three were still working with their proctors to get in. And the problem appeared to be the room scan. That's what we heard anyway, that that wasn't working properly. And so multiple scans required. It was taking time. Uh, any room scan that doesn't work right, there sort of starts to be a backlog of people behind them who are waiting now to have their room scan. Hour two, it was actually quite similar. I think we were maybe uh, uh, 100 and, um, 126 people out of 130 got in. And then we started getting phone calls at the board office. So the people are like, we tried to reach for efficient. We can't reach our proctor. We're not sure we're going on. And we were like, what? Because um, we weren't really supposed to be providing any support because we don't actually have any technical information. We only have answers to questions. Um, uh, and so we started trying to reach for efficient. And uh, they didn't respond to us either. And then we tried through ITS. We were like, you got to get them on the line. What's going on? We're hearing that people aren't able to get through. We're hearing that proctors are shutting down the exams inappropriately. Um, what is going on? And it was, it was a deafening silence. So we were, we were really working in a void. Uh, the noon, and, and I will say that we were still sort of hoping that it was just a few problems. Uh, at noon, no one started the exam. The report we got from the noon was that no one knew started the exam. We're like, this is something catastrophic is happening. What is happening? And by then our phones were blown up. We couldn't keep track of it. Um, uh, and so, you know, we continued actually trying to get very efficient because they were really the only ones with answers or potential solutions. And the only message we got back was that they knew that there, that there was a problem they were, and that they were working on it and they would give us an update as soon as they can. And um, that went on, you know, for some time. And then I don't remember the timeline exactly, but right about two o'clock, we were like, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, we don't know what's going on. The candidates don't know what's going on. We just have to, we have to freeze it. So we um, sent out a message asking um, everyone who was currently taking the exam to stop uh, anyone who hadn't yet started the exam to not try to get on and that we would get, we would let them know as soon as we had an answer. And I think we set three o'clock as the time that we would be able to answer. Um, very efficient CEO got on the line. He's not actually a tech person and said, uh, you know, we think you know, we're patching the problem. It should be okay. We should be ready to go again around two 30. And I was like, okay, well, we'll add, you know, we'll add a little time onto that. We'll, we'll, we'll let everybody restart at three. And then he didn't get back. And I was like, confirm for us at two 30, that it's okay. Uh, and he didn't get back on. He didn't call us back, you know, three o'clock, three We're like, we told everyone that we would let them know. Um, and uh, uh, ultimately he came, I don't even remember, you know, an hour, hour or so later and said, uh, you know, we're still working on it. We think we can fix it. Eventually we, uh, uh, we called the exam around six o'clock said it's over. We can't, uh, we're not going to be able to complete it. Anyone who hasn't started can't start. Uh, and then 
And then we rolled into the evening thinking that uh, we might be able to salvage it for the 750 or so people who actually did finish it, understanding that it might have been so traumatic for them with so many interruptions and so much inter- you know, interaction uh, that, that it might not be valid anyway, but we were still hoping to keep it alive. Let the 750 people finish, let the people who hadn't started if they wanted to, which of course was a question, to take the exam from um, you know, the full exam the next day. And so we were working feverishly really on communications and rescheduling people internally and waiting to hear back from Burfish. And the first really awful news we got was about the Facebook contact. Um, we heard from someone saying that they were Facebook contacted by their proctor and, you know, our, our, like, our hair caught on fire. And we did manage to wrestle uh, the Verificient CEO back up to talk to us. Uh, and several of them came on the line and said that that, that, that had, such a thing had never happened. We, we had screenshots of the requests, so we had, you know, evidence of it. The candidate had sent them to us. Uh, and they said that they would track it down, but in all their history, such a thing had never occurred before. And they, you know, they weren't sure what was going on. And um, so maybe we should have stopped everything right then. Um, but uh, uh, we sort of kept rolling. And it wasn't until midnight. Am I going on too long now? Is this uh, what you want to be hearing? No, no, please. If, uh, if you have more to say, we'd love to hear it. It wasn't until about midnight um, when we still thought that we were going to be able to uh, launch the exam for people that we got a message that one of the patches that Verifician had done had made it so that you could use your phone again, that it was open all during the exam. And so one of my staff, we could go into the exam and have a sort of simulated exam experience. She went into the exam to see if that was true, launched the exam. Apparently, the, as the tab shut down, she got a computer-generated message that said, do you, do you want us to shut down your email, your Gmail? And she said, well, no. So it didn't get shut down. The exam launched, which meant that she had free access to her email during the exam, which meant the candidates would too. She sent us, she emailed all of us and said, I'm here taking the exam. You know, um, here's my email. And we said, it's, it's over now. Like it, it was, it was over hours before. It just took us that long to finally say it, it, it is now officially hopeless. We can't resurrect this in any way. So at 1210, we made that decision. I think I've said before, weirdly, uh, this is not known to me until I became an administrator. It takes a little while for mass emails to roll out. So we sent out an email to everyone saying it was canceled. I think the last person got it around two in the morning people woke up and got that message. That was, that's, that was our, our experience. So that was the, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back then, Dr. Bysky. It was, it was your experience in that simulation. Um, uh, I think it was, you know, it was cumulative, you know, uh, it's uh, we were, we, we went from thinking everything was going pretty well at eight in the morning to realizing a lot of people were having problems to being, you know, really overwhelmed with the problems, but thinking that they might be able to fix them, patch them so we could sort of start again. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was that weird place of sort of hope being dangled in front of us. And realistically, by the time we were even thinking about starting the exam again at four in the afternoon, people were, you know, people not able to do that. And, and we knew that, but we were still sort of trying to pull it through for anyone that, who still could. We were trying to salvage what we could. Um, so, and how were you getting these updates about how test day was going? I mean, is it safe to say that you kind of turned the reins over to the, to the, to the proctor service for this, for this new process? And, and you were getting kind of all these updates ad hoc, not really knowing what was truly going on? So we, um, you know, in the world of exam delivery, we write the questions, we sign a contract, and we send them the questions. Uh, and we really, you know, we don't have much to do with Pearson centers. I don't know how they're, you know, I've, I've actually taken exams at Pearson centers when we have research exams, but we don't, we're not involved in that stuff. Uh, 
So we have no technology answers. And so, yeah, actually the short and true answer is yes, we, we handed it off to the exam development people, exam delivery people. Um, and we did have a, a Slack channel for communication, should there be any problems. And we had uh, an escalation pathway that proctors were supposed, they actually had a script, you know, if the candidate, you know, looks out the window, we're supposed to prompt them once the proctor. But if they look out twice, we're supposed to pause the exam and then we're supposed to check with you. That never worked. We never got any question about any candidate doing, you know, we didn't get any of that. They went to the bathroom without, um, without telling us. Uh, so we had provided them with scripts. Um, you were allowed to go to the bathroom actually. Um, but uh, the exam was supposed to, you were, the exam was supposed to be locked then and you weren't supposed to be able to go backwards. You could only go forwards if you had to mm-hmm. leave the room. And we actually, we spent a lot of time on those scripts, you know, what, what the proctor could just pause and correct, you know, well, what happens if a kid runs into the room? Well, that's just a pause. What happens if an adult comes in the room and stays? Not that we really thought anything like that would happen. Well, that's a, you know, freeze and contact us, but we never actually heard any of that. So, I mean, I think the, the whole, um, the whole platform just essentially completely imploded. I mean, Verificient did not deliver on any aspect of uh, what we thought they were going to. And so I'm curious to know what um, what's going on now with your communication with your efficient and how what have they told you after you know after the fact? So um, uh, you know they're a subcontractor with ITS. We have very little contact with them beforehand. We had more contact, more con- uh, a ton of contact, uh, sort of uh, that evening and early the next day. And since then, it's you know we talk to ITS and they talk to Verificient. Um, uh, without, you know, no one has been hostile, but I have to say there hasn't been a lot of, uh, communication or explanation from Verificient. Um, they just, and so, you know, most of our communications with RTS, our understanding is that the app for the room scan failed, um, that they were trying to do live patching of that, uh, that everything that they did then created new problems, um, we never did get an answer about why the customer service was such a complete failure. I mean, I can understand being overwhelmed by 11 in the morning, but why they weren't even answering people at seven in the morning, I, I don't know. Um, and I'm not sure that we're, I'm not sure that we're going to get those answers. Um, uh, yeah. they, they, you know, I'm not sure how much of that information we're ever going to actually get. Dr. Jarman, I was hoping to get uh, some of your input here as the president of the APDS um, and, communication with all the program directors throughout the country um, and trainees as you're a program director. Uh, what has been your experience um, and, and what do you think are potential options for going forward? Yeah, thank you. So, um, I mean, clearly this is an extremely tough couple of days for our graduates and in, in the aftermath um, has just been difficult. And, it, and I guess maybe just to be clear um, for your listeners who may not be as familiar with maybe the importance of this process, I mean, the, the American Board of Surgery qualifying exam is, you know, one of the penultimate goals of our trainees. So it's something for them to conquer. It's, you know, successful completion is their ticket to the next step, which is the certifying exam. And ultimately, it's their um, ultimate ticket to their ability to practice general surgery after, you know, many years, as we've run this call from five to seven years, six, seven years of intense commitment. So, so it's a huge hurdle. It requires prep over many years, although there is this uh, bludgeoning prep right before the exam. Um, and I know that, um, I, I guess I know that that's evident to everybody on the call, but I just wanted to it can maybe verbalize that. Um, the, the, 
I guess regarding the, the the prep for the exam, it was challenging. I think for those for those re- reasons that were out, outlined by uh, Dr. Bankhead, um, you know, candidates had departed from their home institutions, so having you know reliable internet and computer access, um, they just became uh, more challenging than I think anyone could have anticipated in this day and age of of our immediate access to everything electronic. Um, we were able, actually able to accommodate some of our graduates in our own institution, as I think many programs were. Uh, but even that was a challenge after they had uh, lost their login access to our computer systems and having to negotiate that in our institutions. Um, I think most program directors were fairly heavily engaged with their graduates, um, actually with some regular updates, even by text during the exam. I know for one of my examinees, uh, they were able to text me somehow um, in some modality with updates and just saying, I'm still sitting here. I'm still sitting here. There's nothing going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of encouraged patience and encouraged uh, perseverance, but it was um, uh, nothing inappropriate was going on. It was just wasn't being, it wasn't functional. Um, so I think that, um, you know, most partners were engaged on some level, you know, kind of during the exam, just hearing the reports. Um, and, um, I, you know, you know, some of the residents, you know, they got through their first, you know, hurdle, they got through the first exam and weren't aware there were problems. Many had problems, but made it through, as we've heard on this call. Um, you know, many were understandably anxious. Um, I'd say a whole, a whole realm of emotions from scared and upset and angry uh, with the entire process. Um, um, as there were, you know, communication challenges, lack of knowing what to really expect on the other end. So um, I think primarily it's that level of disappointment that um, that everyone invests so much time in something and preparing for an exam that you know now it's unclear what will happen whether it'll be delayed uh, to a more inconvenient time during you know during fellowship or during the first year in practice. Um, so I, that's a lot I think, but we, I think we saw like all stages of anger among our graduates and actually program directors as well. Uh, you could see it on our listserv. You could see it on social media. Um, and I think right now we just um, are waiting for some answers, not so much as to what went wrong, maybe, but answers to what's next and what's going to be expected moving forward. You know, I think uh, to Dr. Beisky's comment about, you know, surgeons tend to shoulder quite a bit. Um, I agree. You know, we're, we're all, all of us are kind of built on grit and, and perseverance. Um, there's some things we shouldn't have to uh, put up with. Um, and uh, there's things that we just do. Um, and uh, um, I think, uh, how we move forward is really going to um, uh, kind of demonstrate the professionalism we have. I think it's going to demonstrate that we can survive things like this and move forward. But um, boy, uh, our just heart goes out to those uh, residents and their experiences or the graduates, I should say, not residents any longer. So um, I guess those are my thoughts on just what the experience has been, how it's been relayed to us through, you know, through our, through our listserv, through our, through our graduates. Thank you, Dr. Jarman. I, I think that uh, you're providing a great pivot point for us to talk about looking forwards. Um, so I'd like to turn it back to uh, our examinees, Dr. Morton, Dr. Bankhead. Um, what has your perspective uh, been on, on the uh, ABS's response thus far? And how, how would you like to see us move forward as a, as a community, you know, in terms of how we take this test and, and what procedures we'll, we'll do subsequently? Um, yeah, I think this is a extenuating problem. It's not a simple problem, and it's not any problem we've ever seen before. And 
it's going to call for an extenuating solution. It's not going to be a simple solution. It's not something that um, is going to be easily understood or found out. I think for me and a lot of candidates, having representation and a seat at the table is something we really valued because as as we've talked about today, these are two stories, but there are over a thousand stories from that day and we're all a little bit different. Um, but we went through a lot that day and we, we want some input as to what is done moving forward. Fully understanding that life isn't fair, first of all, and that the solution is not going to be conducive to absolutely everyone. And that's just how life goes. Uh, but I think having a little bit of representation of us uh, and our families to the board is something we've really advocated for. There has been a movement by the RAS through the ACS to have that. And actually those applications were due today. So we're really looking forward to having that representation. Um, I think the other thing uh, for me personally is hearing Dr. Bytesky talk about those principles that the board established early on about, okay, COVID has changed the world and how we do things. What are the principles that we want moving forward? And I think maybe hearing from them um, those principles now, now that things have changed and how do those principles look now? Because I think that would maybe help some of us understand when it, when the solution doesn't roll out like we had hoped it would or like we um, were wanting personally for our own individual selves, it, it might help us understand uh, the board's reasoning for moving forward like that. Dr. Martin? Sure. Um, ultimately, I think Transparency um, and um, expediency um, are key. Um, I think it is important um, that the ABS and that Dr. Beisky um, continue to provide um, as much timely um, and clear communication um, to candidates as possible going forward. Um, and I, I do very much um, appreciate um, that while we all want answers, that we understand uh, why they're being so deliberate and taking time to release information. Um, as they are, um, given that this was a huge fiasco and that there is zero margin for error um, as we move forward. Um, I think that most of us as candidates are interested in two things. One is receiving um, a judicious, judicious decision about how we will move forward um, towards our board certification um, as soon as possible. Um, and two, like Dr. Bankhead Kendall has said, having our voices heard um, and represented, represented as decisions are made regarding what to do for the current cohort of QE candidates. Um, and then I do think that, you know, we have been reminded um, by the recent FAQs provided by the ABS that our certification is an entire package. You know, it's not just the qualifying exam or just the certifying exam. Um, and part of um, the post-QE uh, um, attempt for me has been understanding what goes into that entire package um, that comprises our board certification um, as general surgeons. And I do want to highlight that one additional feature um, of our cohort is the unique leadership and training challenge represented by the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and I know that Dr. Bankhead Kendall and I, um, like many in our cohort, have written about these challenges. Um, in the provision of healthcare in multiple arenas related to the current pandemic. Um, and there have been some comments that almost seem to paint um, the COVID-19 impact on our training as an impediment, almost using it 
um, against us to an extent. But I think that that reasoning is problematic and that the discussion about that particular aspect of our training um, can be reframed in a positive light. Our experience of adjusting to training um, and taking care of patients um, impacted by the coronavirus has only enhanced our training and not detracted from it. Um, and I think that recognition of this particular aspect of our training package by the board would be appropriate going forward. Um, and then a, a couple of other things. Um, Dr. Bicey, you've stated um, that the mission of the board is to protect the public and enhance the profession. And I just want to say that that is exactly um, what the 2020 candidates have spent, you know, the better part of the last six months doing is most of us have been on the front lines um, of caring um, for patients during the COVID pandemic. Um, in terms of what else I think the ABS could do going forward, um, you know, the ABS has paved the way in the past, you know, more recently piloting the successful virtual um, certifying exam, um, um, and in the past advocating for changing fellowship start times to August 1st that give candidates that adequate time to finish residency and transition to fellowship and also prepare for boards. Um, I think that examinees are looking for the same bold um, yet, you know, equanimous approach to fixing um, the certification process. Um, both uh, for our class and for future cohorts. And I think we're looking um, to the board for a timely and fair response. And I'm hopeful, like Dr. Bankhead Kendall, um, regarding the ABS reaching out through the RAS ACS to add candidate representatives um, to the decision-making process moving forward. And I think um, that that is you know, a positive next step, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, and I really do hope that uh, you know, ultimately, you know, the package of certification that's already been completed by 2020 candidates um, might be considered more than sufficient and that the board will allow us, you know, to move on to the CEE without significant delay required um, to take a full repeat QE. Um, I think allowing us to take the, the certifying exam first even and offering alternative options for justifying our knowledge by using either a modified qualifying exam or even an open book format might be even a few reasonable options. Um, an open book format would certainly be different um, than the traditional qualifying exam. However, offering this to examinees um, might be a compromise even and would go a long way in alleviating some of that burden um, that has been placed on examinees. So I just ultimately hope that the board will prioritize any option that accounts for the time, money, and energy um, that have already been expended um, by the 2020 candidates. Thank you. you. You guys have clearly done a lot of thinking and provide, provide a ton of concrete and at least on face very reasonable um, ideas and, and possibilities moving forwards. So I'll, I'll turn it over to back to Dr. Bysky. That Those were a lot of ideas that were just propositioned. Um, and I'll just kind of turn it over to you to kind of tell us what you what you think about those ideas. It sounds like we like um, there needs to be both, uh, you know, solutions for the current class in the short term. And also in this post-COVID world, thinking about, you know, how, how we might go uh, forwards in the future with, with next te test takers. And so I'll, I'll uh, leave both those points to you. Thank you. So uh, I wasn't taking notes while you two were talking. So if I don't answer something that you specifically asked, put it back and ask it again. I'm not trying to avoid anything. Um, I was trying to listen. And it, it has been a really... Uh, <laughs> A horrible learning curve for me. It's, and it is, it's a little bit like having a patient with a terrible complex complication. I wake up every day and I'm like, it's like, what is, what is this feeling of doom I have? Uh, and it's like, oh, you know, it's this horrible, it's this horrible thing that's going on that I don't know the answer to today, that I don't know how to fix yet today. 
but I know that there are steps that I have to take towards it. And I know that there are some already in play and I'm already gathering information and I have people working with me. Um, and it, it's, it's a lot like that. Uh, and so the tension between um, an expeditious answer and a good answer is real. You know, off the bat, I you know, desperately wanted to come up with a, an answer, you know, that weekend by Monday. Uh, and actually, and in terms of communications, it wasn't until late Friday that I was alerted to the idea that people were waiting, hoping they could still take the exam, you know, that day or the next day. So some combination of information flow and decision making was, um, um, you know, all comes into play. Uh, but uh, emerging from the fog, it was really clear that we couldn't make a hasty decision and that we needed to have a lot, a lot of voices at the table. Uh, so, you know, we have a we have an elaborate system of governance that we just rede- uh, redesigned so that people have sort of silos of uh, expertise. And the, the big silo of expertise in this one is the General Surgery Board, which is actually brand new or a year old, but is comprised of very seasoned leaders. So, you know, getting input from them, hearing from the program directors. And we hear from people both formally and informally. You know, we, our, our inboxes exploded all across the board, every email access, and we read all of them. We compiled the information. We tried to turn it into FAQs. We went back to the program directors to ask them questions. But we didn't, we didn't really, I think we were slow to establish for more formal lines of communication. Um, so I read the APDS listserv and read emails that came and answered some of them. And uh, Dr. Jarman reached out pretty quickly, like, we're here to help. Um, we were like, thank you. But we didn't say, let's convene, you know, let's convene. Um, but those, those things are in, uh, in place now. So we have an upcoming um, roundtable, really, with uh, uh, a dozen or so program directors that uh, Dr. Jarman has selected. That'll be with ABS leadership and the General Surgery Board leadership. The RAS reached out to us right away, I think on Friday, saying, you know, please have a town hall. Uh, and then later on, you know, we need people at the table. And so the pauses in saying, yes, of course, were more like, I have to turn around and see, you know, what group should come to the table, not um, let me think about it. I, and I probably should have started with, yes, let me work that out, as opposed to let me work it out and I'll tell you, you know, and I'll make it easy for you to do it. So those are things I, you know, do I wish I could revisit maybe, you know, realistically, I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much timeline there was in terms of the reputation of this year's class um, for any changes in COVID. I am 100% behind the idea that this was a once in a century leadership training school where surgical residents got to, and fellows got to rise to the occasion in, in completely uncharted waters and manage, you know, surge capacity and um, access to, to um, you know, to protective gear and learning under those circumstances and creating, you know, new ways of taking care of patients and tracheostomy teams and all the things that, uh, that this group of people that I am a hundred percent behind that. Um, and, and uh, perhaps what I'm hearing from this is that we need to um, actively promote that to other stakeholders. Because when I said that there's questions about this year's residents, it's not from us. You know, we, we abide by the program director's evaluations um, and we believe it ourselves that this, uh, independently that this group has, has had an amazing experience and done an amazing job. But we do get calls from, I got a call from the state licensing board in Florida. We're like, they're like, well, you know, we, they probably didn't do as many cases because you know, all those elective cases didn't happen. How are you sure? How are you sure that they're as good as other classes? And so one of the ways that I could be sure 
would be, or one of the one of the easy answers would be, we held them to the exact same standards as every other class. That's you know that's you know so don't don't ask that question because they met exactly the same standards. So those are the things that come into play, those discussions. Um, but but I am hearing that I should probably actually say outwardly, loudly that we support the qualifications of this class because that that I think hasn't happened um, in terms of. Um, uh, knowing about the other pieces of certification. One of the things that I, uh, I really didn't understand, even when I started at the board, is the other waters that we swim in. And some of that is the other 23 boards. Uh, and some of it is the stakeholders, the hospitals, the insurance companies, the employers, even the state licensing boards to some extent. Um, and, uh, and we're all held to the same standards. So in order to be part of the board community, we have to explain, justify, and to some extent get approval for any changes. And their drumbeat is consistency. So what I, what I heard when we went to the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield a few years ago and said, um, you know, you need to recognize board certified surgeons um, he said, well, gosh, you know, that's funny because one board certified surgeon in general surgery looks different than a board certified surgeon in orthopedic surgery. And that looks different than a board certified surgeon in neurosurgery. So when you start claiming the same title through different routes, he's like, that doesn't help me. I can't rely on it. Uh, and that was an important lesson to me. I'm not sure I'm explaining it particularly well, that um, these other groups buy into the package. And the more we change the package the less they feel that they can trust it. And so part of my conversations now is turning to some of those groups and saying, um, what's important to you about the package? You know, is it, is it that you fully trust us to say it's okay? Um, or is it that, you know, you have these series of checkboxes? Is it consistency across the years? Would you accept um, a variation on that for this COVID year? So those are conversations that we're sort of having simultaneously because I want the the value of certification to stay as high as it is. Uh, and I want the certificate for this class to have the same value. And if it is diminished for you in any way, then it's diminished for everybody. And so that's the tension. Recognize the, the sort of pain and suffering, recognizing the legitimacy of your training, finding some sort of path to um, make sure that the outward facing look is valid and also continuing to meet our own standards. And I'm still, we're still getting information on that. Um, we still have those upcoming meetings. Um, I have a meeting with my board this afternoon, which is really smart people who are in various fields of um, healthcare. Uh, some of them, the joint commissions on the board, some of them, the double AMCs on the board, surgeons from various walks of life and fields. And so all of that is useful information. Uh, and, uh, uh, I hope I can uphold the trust that all of you have, uh, that will come up with a, fair answer. Uh, so Dr. Beisky, um, one question, you know, that was reiterated to us multiple times over again is, and I, and I think you were alluding to it, um, is what is the value of the QE when the pass rates are in the 97th percentile? You have absite scores on all of these trainees over five, six years that could potentially be used as a substitute. Um, and, and there's concerns that basically it's a tax on the residents to get their, you know, board certification because um, the pass rate being so high. So, uh, you know, I, I think some people think this is an extenuating circumstance. The, the board messed this up. 
people's lives have to get on. Can we just get rid of the QE this one time or have some sort of like Dr. Martin alluded to some sort of alternative examination and then go back to a more standard routine? And, and I think you did a great job of kind of alluding to that, but can you uh, kind of answer that question for us? So the, actually your last comment, go back to a more standard routine is, is sort of pertinent to the discussions because I do think one of, one of the upshots of all of this is that we'll change things going some things going forward for future classes. Um, you know, one thing we've talked about for a long time is, um, not a long time, is um, that the probably the knowledge exam should be while you're still in training, like the neurosurgeons do. The Royal College system does that. Um, and I, I worked with the Ministry of Health in Singapore for five years to convert their system to the American system. And at one point when they found out that we give our knowledge exam after people leave their training sites, they're like, how do you justify that? What happens if they fail? They're not where they can learn anymore. And I was like, that's a really good point. Uh, and so there is a fair amount of energy into maybe moving that back into training. From listening to you all, though, trying to study while you're actively in training, um, it brings up a whole other host of questions. But um, so some of these changes, I think, will be galvanized to happen sooner and be more, but they're not going to benefit. That won't benefit this group. It's too late to go back and uh, do things in training. So what about the written exam? What's the validity of a memorization exam when you can look up everything online anyway? And I would say that there are, there are two reasons for it. Um, one is just you know, general adult learning principles that we learn better when we have to reiterate, regurgitate information. And that's in small bites, you know, multiple frequent small assessments culminated in a larger high stakes assessment. So sort of human nature, um, we study when we have to study when we have a test coming up, which is, you know, why everybody you know, tries to get the month of January off to study for the in-training exam. Um, and so adult learning principles are include that assessment helps you learn and retain information. So there's that aspect of it. There's the, uh, the public facing aspect of it because we are a really high stakes certification and, um, those other constituents, the government, CMS, the insurers, they expect us to demonstrate that people have acquired knowledge. And so far, a knowledge-based exam, a written exam, is really the acceptable standard. You know, there's, there's the bar, there are the airplane pilot exams. Um, and you'd say, well, we can look up everything. I don't really, I, I would have to disagree that you can just look up everything. So if you are you know, in the office and you don't notice that your patient's teeth are rotten, um, you know, rotten teeth might be reflux uh, or they might be achalasia, but you can't look it up in that order. You know, in the diagnostic aspect of things, you have to have a core of information that gives you the pieces to put together that's not look upable, which is why Dr. Google doesn't work for every patient. So you can't so look I, up what you don't know, right? Exactly. Thank you for saying that so much more concisely than I did. Um, uh, so I think that there's value in, a, in, an, in an actual test. Do I think that that's what we're going to rely on forever? I don't, but, uh, but we're not at that better state yet. Um, for this particular class, is there a way of uh, working around that, and the, the in-training exam is the one that comes up most frequently. Uh, and I'm going to say we're, we're we're not at a final decision point yet. Um, uh, there are flaws with using the in-training exam, and they're multiple. Uh, one of the one of the most significant flaws is that um, uh, it's not a secure exam. So every year we have people who have matched answers, um, including wrong matched answers. And we only look at the expectations for that if that match set of answers, if the likelihood of that happening by random occurrence is less than one in 10 million. 
So it's not secure in terms of knowing for sure that it's reflective of people's knowledge. It wasn't billed as a high stakes exam. So plenty of people in their chief year don't do all that well. Um, the chief year actually doesn't do any better than the fourth year usually. Um, and so they could legitimately say, well, had I known, <laughs> had I only known, um, but those aren't necessarily insurmountable obstacles. So that would be, if we were going to say we need another sort of knowledge-based substitute, I suppose that that would be it. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. I don't have an actual, uh, a solid answer yet, but that is the, that is the rationale for a, a high stakes written exam, both outward facing so that we can say, yes, we tested these people for knowledge. This is part of the package of things that you rely on, a knowledge test, a judgment trust, and the standards and training, the program director's testimonial, um, and the fact that we think it actually does enhance retention of knowledge. One question I know uh, people ask me to ask also is, are there currently any plans to use the same at-home-based online system? And I know this just changed <laughs> as of today for vascular surgery. We got an email that that's yeah. not going to happen. Are there, so what's your answer to that? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the fall, the September exams were supposed to be based on the same platform. So that's clearly not happening. That's a catastrophe. And I, I, I would probably go down permanently saying I will never work with Verificient again. Um, but there are other, um, online proctoring systems and there may be a day when we want to revisit that for now, uh, you asked about principles. Uh, um, I'm not sure it's our highest principle, but it's certainly high is we, we're not going to have another failure. We're not putting people through this chaos again. So we're gonna have to return to something tried and true. Uh, and between the fact that it turns out that at-home proctoring is really a problem for people, both in terms of the intrusiveness um, and in terms of finding a situation for it, and it's sort of ongoing nature as an experiment, that's not going to be a solution for us this year. Did I answer that full question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I just want to open it up to uh, Brittany and, uh, I'm sorry, or Dr. Bankhead um, and Dr. Martin, if you guys have any sort of, I know we're getting close on time here. I want to give you guys the last chance to say anything. I just wanted to say that this has been um, incredibly a productive discussion and I sincerely appreciate um, Dr. Jarman and Dr. Beiske, um for being here and being open to hearing our perspectives and our suggestions. I, I would say that immediately in the wake of the exam from the perspective of the examinee, it was difficult to understand um, who our true advocates were um, in going forward in this. Um, and like many trainees, I personally reached out to my program director um, as he has been one of my best advocates um, throughout residency. Um, I also felt comfortable speaking up on social media and through email to the ABS and several of its members um, who I know. And I just wanted to strongly support other candidates in doing the same. Uh, I think that all examinees should use their PDs and chairs as their advocates to the board. Um, and I think that these prior relationships between probably more seasoned surgical leaders and ABS members might make it more likely that their opinions and suggestions will be taken into consideration. Although I do feel um, more that I have been heard and that my fellow candidates are being heard. Um, but I just wanted to put that out there um, to my fellow candidates. Don't hesitate to reach out to your program directors like Dr. Jarman. They may be um, our best liaisons to the ABS. And so be persistent and follow up if you've already reached out. Um, and initiated these conversations, like don't stop pushing. Yeah, I think I wanted to also say, I know there's no one here from the military, but I know there's experiences like the military and um, tenured licenses and all kinds of things that our 
contractual agreements and governmental agreements for naval surgeons and and other types of surgeons are all kind of dependent on this board certification being done by a certain time. And so having that advocacy from ourselves, but also from the APDS, as well as the board and Dr. Bysky, to put that out there formally and have it well known that this is a very extenuating set of of circumstances. And um, we really encourage everyone to take into account what's happened um, on behalf of us as candidates while this is all being unfolded would be really appreciated, I think, um, since we can only do so much for ourselves. If it comes from a governing body, it would really um, help us. And I totally agree with uh, Dr. Martin that we really, really appreciate having a voice and for you guys giving us this outlet to discuss. And I think at the end of the day, we are all on the same page and we all want to take really good care of patients and we want people to value what we do and how we do it. And uh, Dr. Jarman, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, boy, a lot, a lot's been said. And so I, I actually didn't use all my time, I think, to address things like, you know, potential options moving forward, because, um, you know, the APDS doesn't have a list of options that can be, are going to be, you know, we can, we can come up with ideas, right, but we're not a certifying body. So we recognize the importance of this exam. We understand the importance of the integrity of it. Um, and so we're, we're really serving as a, um, a voice for the canaries in the coal mine, right? So we're, we're trying to figure out ways that um, as an organization, we can try to facilitate a, an exam in the future if possible, if we can have some um, role in that. Um, as Dr. Beisky said, even if it's during training um, in the future for the current class, if it involves some type of proctoring, I think there's program directors that would be um, engaged with that. So I, I think um, while we don't have the, we're not the owners of, of the options, I think we can really be a collaborator. And um, I, again, to Dr. Beisky's point, we've been in, in you know, contact from really Thursday, day one of the exam, um, with ideas and reporting what was going on. And, and, um, and we'd really appreciate that opportunity to be engaged. I think we're, we've always um, had a strong partnership that way. So um, as we come around and get through all these stages of almost grief now and trying to look forward, uh, uh, that's going to be really important. And I think the one thing I've, the one thing I've taken away from this, um, um, all the information and all the, um, um, all the experiences is that we, you know, the, the we do need to have, um, that voice of the candidates, um, uh, in our, in our hearts and on our minds as we kind of make these decisions. And so I think this is, this has really been a great forum for me to gain that. I've gained it from my own graduates, um, and, um, um, and, and how they, um, how this is affecting them. So, um. I really appreciate just the opportunity to be on the line. Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Jarman. The program directors are definitely the backbone of uh, general surgery training and the support from you guys is invaluable. Um, and Dr. Bicey, I just want to open it up uh, in the future. If when the decision comes and you guys need help, uh, you know, getting that message out uh, behind the knife is here to help get that message out to the candidates. And maybe we'll invite Dr. Martin and Dr. Bankhead Kendall um, as they were fantastic uh, guests today. Um, Dr. Bicey, do you have any closing words? And I just really want to thank you for coming during this incredibly busy time and stressful time for you and and coming and and talking with us all. It really, I think, speaks a lot to you and to the ABS. Well, I I also want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, I want to thank Dr. 
Dr. Martin, Dr. Bankhart for their vulnerability really and sharing those stories, which are really difficult. Um, uh, and it's, I think it's really important to have that really personal voice in the stories. Uh, I want to thank you for listening to the, you know, the aspect, um, uh, you know, the real aspect of how we try to arrive at these decisions with an open mind and to everybody's really, you know, commitment to doing the right thing going forward, that it, it's a shared commitment across for all of us. And I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about it publicly. I want people to, I don't want people feeling like things are being done to them. Um, and I think the more that we can hear and, and, uh, and, uh, sort of express how we try to figure things out, the less it feels like things are being done to them. Um, Definitely. All right. Well, thank you everyone for uh, this extended time on Behind the Knife and we look forward to talking again uh, soon. Until next time, dominate the day.